listening to a Culture Builders podcast. Hello, my name's Jane Sparrow, founder and author at The Culture Builders, and I'm recording this on the 4th of October. So as such, being October, it's ADHD Awareness Month. Now I've had first-hand experience of ADHD, both personally and professionally, and feel hugely passionate about raising awareness around what it's like to experience a world if you have ADHD, and just how much the world is geared for people that are of predominant neurotype. Our systems, our processes, our our structures in certainly most organisations are geared not really considering those that have other needs, other ways of working, other traits that actually might be better catered for in different ways. And I'm passionate that if we could create cultures where we could embrace different ways of working, we would truly be able to let everybody bring their best to work and help businesses thrive. So with that in mind, I am more than thrilled to have a very special guest with me today on our podcast. Dr. Samantha Hugh, multi-award-winning social entrepreneur, intersectionality and neurodiversity professional speaker. She's a scientist. She's a great storyteller, as you will hear and women's empowerment and intersectional inclusion champion. Now, she's got a background in communication and medical science PhD. There is so much around Sam that I am I'm excited to bring to you, and I'm going to get her to say a little bit more about herself and her journey in a moment. But today we're going to, to explore the whole area, particularly of girls and women with ADHD, and what we can be doing to make sure that we allow those people to completely thrive and bring their best. So Sam, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Jane. That was an amazing introduction. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you for being with us. Tell us a bit more about yourself, because I clearly have not done you justice in my introduction. Tell us a little bit more about what you do and and how you got started. Yes, thank you so much. So um, I've been called... um, very embarrassingly something uh, along the lines of a renaissance woman and i didn't really know what that meant because i grew up in asia and of course i knew about the renaissance but i i suppose it was because it of, of my dizzying arrays of experience and qualifications because i grew up with um undiagnosed adhd in a part of asia called Kuala Lumpur, malaysia and i had to really find my own way you know through life and um never really you know really understood how my brain works and continuously get confused by the way i just don't really seem to be able to get with a program um, and that starts from early life in in school where i have a big uh, class of 40 children and never really understood or hear the teacher because you know of the noise around me and um, there's one thing i realized with adhd is that it also has so many you know, ways in which you can present physically. And one of them is auditory processing disorder, where you can't hear, you know, um, the voice that you want to hear in an environment where, you know, so many people are talking. So um, I moved to London um, about two decades ago now to pursue my postgraduate in medical science. Um, So from then on, I just kind of, um, finished with a PhD and realized that I didn't want to stay in the lab and then uh, swiftly 
pivoted after you know working in science for the last over a decade and then decided okay you know now i'm gonna see where you know my skills are you know what i was gonna do but with that came a huge culture shock because as you can imagine from for for somebody who is pretty much a geek and a nerd <laughs> working in the lab and then going into the world of work and there was like you know that th there wasn't one thing that i wanted to do i wanted to do everything you know that i thought you know maybe as a child you know i could um really express myself through writing so I became a writer and as most writers will know being being like a travel writer or a blog writer doesn't really pay so I had to kind of figure out how to utilize my qualification my PhD in science and I became um impact writer healthcare writer and um a communications consultant so I helped doctors and scientists relay their messages to lay people and that kind of sharpened my communication skills, helped me understand how to work within corporate cultures and, you know, various different settings as well. So it was interesting where, you know, you're con continuously trying to find where you belong in the world of work and never really finding this one place. So when I got diagnosed with ADHD, I decided to create my own place. And that was at the age of 40 where I brought all the skills for the from the 16 different sectors to put into a social impact company that has a dual mission to empower women and girls with ADHD to thrive in society and to improve neurodiversity understanding through an intersectional lens. Wow. I mean, I listened to that introduction and I'm, I'm right. I could never have done you justice myself. Um, but, but there's so much in there I would love to dig into. Now, I want to go back in a moment to school because what you described is what so many children, girls, parents and guardians of, of children see going on in the classroom even now. So I want to go back to that experience. But, but before I do that, for anyone listening that's maybe not as familiar as we are with ADHD, can, can you give us just a, a quick description of, of what is it? Yeah, so attention deficit hyperactivity disorder needs a renaming and a reframing. It is um, not fully a disorder. It's not the full story. Okay, so we, um, especially adults who are diagnosed later in life, we you know don't see it as a deficit of attention, but it's actually you know a difficulty in regulating attention that you're giving everywhere. You know because the ADHD brain is innately different from a brain without ADHD. And in the last decade, researchers have been trying to redefine what ADHD means. It is no longer the hyperactive, you know, naughty, you know, uh, white boy and disruptive um, yeah. child in the class. We know now, you know, women and girls have ADHD, intersectional identities, diverse identities from different, you know, social class, um, yeah, and ethnicity and the culture can have, you know, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is just that we wish that it was called something else so there are six fundamental features to adhd one of them is yeah that's the distractibility but it's also hyper focus where if you're really interested in something or your attention can you know be zoomed in right but it's the difficulty in regulating that attention and being able to do it on demand that is difficult and that's why so many adhders develop anxiety because we are constantly having to adapt, you know, and then our brain would not 
truly light up unless it's really interested <laughs> in something and, and that has to do with the lower levels of uh, neurotransmitters that we have in the brain you know dopamine and not epinephrine and various life circumstances can impact that level as well so another one is hyperactivity but hyperactivity doesn't necessarily you know get expressed in the way that we think you know not that hyper burst of energy like bouncing off the ceilings it can be hyper reactive hyper talkative you know hyper social and then emotional dysregulation which always has a trigger it doesn't just come out of the blue um behavioral self-regulation what we know as executive functioning you know this is the prefrontal cortex the frontal lobe of the brain that um, um regulates our day-to-day -day task okay so there are menial tasks like you know like even just waking up and getting out of bed and knowing where your keys are <laughs> and then going for a walk um yeah, so there are things that regulate um, the way we do day-to-day -day things, you know, so organizing and delegating and working memory. And then the spontaneous mind-wandering is another trait that they've picked up. And this also coincides with, you know, spontaneous thoughts that popped in your brain and creativity, you know, is a result of that, isn't it? And uh, impulsivity, you know, that that we, we know of, and this can often manifest as being disruptive or, you know, blurting out something when someone is talking because you don't want to forget and um this can also manifest in self-medication and addiction if we fly under the radar and we're trying to work out you know how to manage a lot of people who are diagnosed later in life tend to have already spent a long time self-medicating and this can sometimes look like what the culture accepts as well you know like alcohol and substance use and you know various things even shop shopping <laughs> for women is it's is, is a thing yeah and as i listen to that i'm smiling of course uh, people won't see that because this is audio but i'm mm -hmm. smiling because i have a couple of colleagues that that absolutely hyper focus in the way that you're describing and i love it when they they find suddenly a connection to something and they're in their flow and it's just wonderful to watch and similarly, the, the, the watching their brains and just tapping into the fact that their brains work so differently from mine is just a joy. Yet also, I have to remember that in my linear way of working isn't necessarily right for them. So really harnessing their creative um, approach is something I'm hugely mindful of making sure that I do. But of course, I have to think differently too and, and, and appreciate that difference in a, in a different way. But listen, just, I said, let's go back to school. I'm just intrigued. When you were at school in that class of 40 and your brain was all over the place, um, how did you get through? What strategies did you, on reflection, feel that you used? Yeah, so I would like to say it was, you know, something that I could just naturally, you know, belt out and, and you know, kind of adapt very quickly. But it took a long time. Now, I would say at least 10 years before I knew what I was doing. But um, I think early on, it was a lot about, you know, that swim or sink mentality. Mm. And when you're young, you know, you go into school. And in Malaysia, I started school at the age of seven. And that is older than a lot of children around the world, right? Because in England, we start here at the age of four. And I relied on my friends, I think, you know, because I didn't know that it helped to be at the front of the class. So I could hear my teachers better when, and I could, you know, minimize the distraction better if I was uh, near them. But I, I just um, 
I had friends around me to help me adapt and relay the messages. And then, you know, just, just trying to work out how to do this, that it was a lot of my stress response being activated now. And now that I know what has happened to me, like, cause I really dive into what happened, you know, how did I become the way that I am and how did us as a collective become who we are, you know, what people say manifests as ADHD traits. There was a lot of uh, challenges which I had to hide, you know, early on in life. But then later on, um, I would say that the thing that actually saved my academic career, you know, is being able to move, you know, as a primary school um, kid, you know, being able to run in the field. And that helped me. I, I, I didn't know why I could never sit still, you know, but being out in the field, I just felt really privileged because I was very athletic very early on. And I had the, yeah, the, 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 the chance to be outside whilst my friends were stuck in the classroom. So I felt really good about that. But when I moved to secondary school and that kind of coincided with puberty, I went to a school without any feel. And that was the worst thing for me oh. because yeah because you have no way of generating like that you know the, the 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 chemicals that you need you know to light up your brain so i became also you know because of the changes in my hormones i became very withdrawn and very quiet and remember feeling down quite a lot and that was a very difficult time like at least three years of that you know in the beginning of secondary school but i i i had friends you know who made things better and i think that was always a blessing that i had you know i always had friends who were really down to earth and i i, I choose the ones who are down to earth and and then the thing that really turned my life around though because i was nearly failing out of every subject because if i liked something i would you know really do so well in it but if i didn't like it i it would just be a train wreck mm. and train wreck it was at the age of 15 but my I developed, uh, I, I found a love for biology and it was my biology teacher who told me that you have to give yourself a chance. In, in my head, I was like, was I not giving myself a chance? Yeah. yeah, and then everyone else around me was saying, you know, like the high grades that we were seeing, you know, this is Asia where everyone, all my friends were like really studious and because their mums and dads have made them think that the only way in life is to, you know, get a good grade and then yeah, get, get a good job. But they told me there's so much effort, you know, you study very hard, you have to put so much work into it, you know, to make it, um, to, 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 to get those grades. So I thought, oh, okay, no one told me that, <laughs> but you have to double down. And that's what I did. I doubled down and had this intense love for biology because it explains the process of how life came to be. And that really comforted me as well, just really seeing the process of how things work. And I think as an undiagnosed autistic at the time also, I I really need, needed to connect the, tr the, 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 you know, connect the process of how things become. And and so, yeah, I think that that actually, yeah, just, just kind of uh, sealed that archetype that I became, which was... Um, I doubled down and became this person who was single-mindedly trying to swim because I knew if I just let go of my control of myself, I would sink. And yeah, and I didn't really let myself relax until I came to the UK and <laughs> pursued my postgraduate. And to me, I felt like, okay, now I can let myself chill now. And yeah, and I 
a period of uh, eight to nine years of pretty much just misadventures one after another. So that was interesting. And now, of course, you're sharing all of that to help other people listening and, and throughout the world learn yeah. and benefit from your experience. And and Sam, when, as you were speaking then, so much of what you said, I, I, you know, I loved, but also resonated with me because the point around movement, I think there's a real understanding here. If we if we can understand that movement is a real need for people that, mm. that have ADHD and that that really helps spark that creativity, particularly mm. in children. You know, I, I, my daughter has ADHD and I'm, I'm very much around manners and so on. And I remember when she was little in a restaurant, she'd want to get up and move. And I'd be constantly thinking, but people are going to think she's rude. You know, she's moving around. And, and now I understand that actually we just all need to be a lot more aware that, mm. that sometimes it's not bad manners. It's, it's just people's needs are different. And that actually what what that leads to is something joyous. And the other thing you were talking about is friends. And I think anyone listening to this that that has children, one of the things that I would love is more education for children generally around others that have ADHD, autism, other neurodiverse. I actually don't like the phrase neurodiverse and we'll come back to that. But but, those that, that experience the world differently and approach the world differently than perhaps they do, because I think friendships and friends can be such a part of, as you've described, supporting others and enabling to bring their best um, and learn and have a, a great a great life. And if we as parents were able to help children understand that tolerance, that encouragement, then you know that would be a really great start for people that perhaps don't necessarily have big support networks around them at the moment um, with ADHD or, or autism or similar. So th- those couple of things I think are, are really really relevant for us all to think about. And you know when when we listen to this kind of thing and sometimes think, well, what can I do? You know, they're two immediate things I think we we can do. But I want to look at some of what you've talked about and how now that applies in the sort of the corporate world, in the, in the organizational world. But before I do that, just very briefly, just tell, tell those listening about your view on the difference between ADHD in boys and girls, in men and women, because they are different, aren't they, in the way that they tend to present and therefore how we can make sure that we understand, we're aware and we harness. Yeah, you're right. You know, there are subtle differences. And if we look biologically, you know, of course, the hormones, you know, the expression of um, sex hormones makes a difference in how uh, girls and boys present, you know, especially when they go into puberty and women and men as well. So that's the biological part of it, right? A lot of um, the differences that you see manifest is an impact of socialization of how girls you know, are treated differently to boys, you know, and where we are, where we sit alongside the dominant culture and how much oppression is being, you know, kind of expressed in on on, on, on girls and also intersectional identities. So um, they think that, I right, say, for ADHD, right, you think that, okay, you know, there is a disruptive, hyperactive um, boy and there is a misconception that, oh, actually, girls are more inattentive daydreamers, but even the disruptive, hyperactive girls haven't been picked up as be having ADHD, you know, and, uh, and so a lot of these things, it really depends on context, the context of how you've been raised, the kind of messages you've been told, because you get girls who are you know, more go-getters. Maybe they more of the, the parent that kind of, you know, kind of um, encourage them very early on, but then they go into school 
and find that actually my best teachers aren't the same yeah <laughs> you know then they'll have to then adapt and they might get more social anxiety you know trying to fit in I mean as you mentioned before Jane like friends friendships actually you know makes such a huge difference you know I have children who refuse to go to school until they found you know a kind friend who made them feel belong and Jane like just knowing that you know the sense of belonging is everything okay you can give a child any accommodation right and understanding okay that that will really help but feeling belong and feeling like I'm not you know weird and, and different in this place is something that we carry with us from when we were children through to you know being in the workplace and that is something that I see again and again as I pivot through different jobs you know across in different industries and I see that now you know in the workplace when yeah we are being diagnosed with ADHD we're getting reasonable adjustments if we're lucky and we, we need to know how to advocate for ourselves to get that and then really the work starts after that you know what then happens because managers would then expect you know the ADHD to then now be able to just you know go off and do your work and be 100 percent but we are in by nature inconsistent I, I think most human beings are you know we're not machines anyway and so yeah yeah so, you're so right and and it's funny you say that because you know, a lot of our work as some people may know goes exactly into that you know we are humans and so let's get human again and understand how we best work with each other as different people and I mentioned just now that I'm I'm not sure about the term neurodiversity for me and the reason for that is because the other day I was talking to my my ADHD daughter and she said to me mummy why do people keep calling me diverse because that means I'm different and and actually you're to me you're different so yeah. why do I have to be the one that's different why can't you be the one that's different and and I stopped for a moment and just thought what a brilliant perspective on the world that that absolutely you know we're all somewhere as a different person from one another so in my head I call it neurospread and, and actually as as people in organizations as leaders as colleagues we need to think of each other all as having different needs, different desires, different approaches, different styles, and think about how do we help each other be the best of ourselves. And I was talking to somebody the other day, I had a walk and talk with a, a client of mine, and we're designing a leadership conference. And we were talking about going back to basics and, and how people communicate with impact in businesses. And, and saying, actually, it starts, of course, with the understanding of what's the outcome you want from the conversation or the communication, what's the need of the individual that you're, you're communicating with, and what's their type and what's their makeup, and what is yours, and then how do you best communicate? And, and actually, that is tip, that's, that's true whether you are, you know, labelled, as it were, neurodiverse or not, isn't it? You know, it's actually we're all different in our own way. So, so tell, tell me more on that subject around how do you see, particularly ADHD, how do you see organisations or individual leaders doing well in the way they're embracing this, bringing it into cultures and into style? Well, I, I would say that it's still in a very, very young stage. You know, there are a lot of companies who are saying, yeah, okay, we're embracing neurodiversity and the time is now, right? But then to actually embed a cultural change, Jane, as you know, it's not a one-day job. Absolutely. It's not that 
yeah, it's not a one session job, which a lot of companies are at at the moment. You know, there are companies that are further ahead in the curve, but there are also so many more who are really just starting with that first awareness sessions. And I would say the FTSE 100 companies, they are, they are definitely, you know, it's in the imperative to be um, seen as neuroinclusive. And I would say it's the tech companies that, you know, tend to spend more effort and, and, and put more budget in, in, in neurodiversity awareness. And so people manages training, you know, but it doesn't just stop there, you know, because ADHDers, when they want to open up about their diagnosis and to, to get some support and reasonable adjustments, they will go straight to their managers. And so we need to train the managers because oftentimes the managers don't actually have any kind of idea on, on what to do and they want to turn to HR. Um, and so that creates a bit of uncertainty, you know, in the workforce. So when I'm asked to come in to give a neurodiversity awareness session, I often kind of warn people, do you realize what this is going to do? You know, this might open up, you know, <laughs> kind of, yeah, a Pandora box. And yeah, so people need to think downstream on, on what to do. And there are things like, do you have an employee resource group network, you know, which, which a lot of companies already do, the bigger ones, but that's a good place for pe like-minded people to form a community and, and you can talk about things and share stories, but also having more day-to-day -day support, like uh, coffee, coffee mornings, you know, some, some people do it, um, some, some companies do it once a week or once a fortnight, but really, it's about telling people that you have these things as well, because oftentimes maybe, you know, HR decided to do this, but it's not been trickled down uh, the company in terms of communication. So I kind of come in and tell people, you know, how to construct a and communications campaign around that as well, which is just as important. Yeah, and and I think the other thing you just touched on there, two things actually that made me think, one was the the sense of belonging you talked about earlier comes in doesn't it you know having those coffee mornings and those like-minded communities within organizations must help that sense of belonging that that is so core to us as humans but but the other thing that you know you and I both share is that passion for for helping managers with this so as some of you know listening my passion is to help enable support equip build the confidence of, of our middle managers not necessarily just our senior leaders where the attention often goes because it's 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 those people that are giving people day-to-day -day experience and actually if they understand more about what it means to have ADHD and how you how you get the best from people and how you tap into that hyper-focus and that creativity and the way the brain works, then the productivity in those teams could be massively improved. So I think there's a huge amount around both the awareness, but also then putting in the beliefs and, and the behavior and the tools that really helps then create that culture that, that we both are, are passionate about. But, but tell me more around, you know, if I'm a leader, perhaps leading somebody with ADHD, what what other things would you say to me that maybe I want to be mindful of? I suppose it's to be aware of how you are leading as well, you know, and how you, um, the way you, yeah, are as a manager and 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 a person, you know, your your working style. Because often, um, as you know, Jane, because you work in you know creating better culture for um, organizations, it's it the the culture of a place is often almost almost always set by someone at the top you know so it almost um kind of creates the mood as you go in you know what you expect to do and you know if you're good at you know 
communicating in a way that won't make people feel like uh, othered and you know sidelined then you know you create a culture that's very inclusive right but then often managers are so busy you know that we might not always communicate adequately our expectations on others and for neurodivergent especially who autistic individuals you know and ADHDers maybe they have a tendency to to yeah have um a, a different way of communicating which might lead to misunderstanding right so it's very important for managers to provide clear expectations of and accountability so to tell them um to relate to the team member what is expected of them um very clearly and articulate expectations around the behaviors as well you know and then like talk about adjustments what they need you know to do their best work and ways of working too you know it's not just like um providing assistive technology or coaching or mentoring it's maybe the most significant adjustment it's about actually just understanding that you know this team member do their best work maybe around 10 a.m instead of nine, nine o'clock or yeah. 8 30 because i've had you know um neurodivergence who come to me and say that oh my manager really have a problem with me coming in at 10 because as you know the workplace is all set with this like you know we start at what 8 eight thirty, and then we finish at 5 or earlier but not everyone works in the same circadian rhythm you know some of us are night owls some of us are morning you know early larks so that is quite a problem like in the workplace less so when we're okay to work um flexibly and from home but more so when you are yeah when you're going back to the office so yeah that that's one of the things that you need to, to be aware of but really it's just to create an environment where people feel safe to contribute and you know to say what they think without the fear of re repercussions that's so true isn't it and therefore you know it's not just about each manager it's a goes back again to culture doesn't it creating a culture where people feel safe to be able to talk about how do you get the best out of me how do I get the best out of you and that as you say there'll be no repercussions and and you know I, I really share your view that we've come a long way but there's still a long way to go I was in a, a session not long ago with a, an exec group and my, one of my colleagues was with me and he said as part of his introduction I'm going to tell you now that I may not remember everybody's name and while you're you're speaking and you're having your conversations, I might not be looking at you. I might be doodling. But what I'm actually doing is capturing some of the insights for you in a way that suits my brain. And at the end, I'll give you something incredible. But my brain works differently. And so I I have ADHD and, and, and I'm telling you that up front so that you don't think in any way it's unusual. Oh, and wow. then, well, it was brilliant, Sam, but then we carried on and I didn't know he was going to do it because it's the first time he'd done it. And at, at the dinner in the evening, the, the number two, the deputy CEO said to me, oh, my gosh, that was wonderful because I've never heard that said before. And and it really helped us all understand that it's OK to do that. But more than that, he said, I've got somebody coming in later who has autism and it's going to make it so much easier for him to be able to come in and share his his story and what he needs to present because people won't have that same judgment that they might have done if if my colleague hadn't said said what he said which was amazing but the, the other side of it was the ceo himself said to me but but jane i found that really hard because i didn't know what to do with it 
Mm. And and it just showed me that there was there was compassion there. I mean, there was no, you know, but but it was almost that kind of vulnerability of I, I, help me, help me moving forward because I want to step into this, but it's so new to me uh, that I don't know how. And I think there's a huge part of people feeling that they might get it wrong. Yeah. And so so you just don't open that conversation as a manager or as a colleague because you don't want to get it wrong. You don't end up, you know, don't want to end up with a judgment that then you can't undo. I don't know whether you've seen and had any conversations recently with people that have had success there in overcoming that. Oh, yeah, absolutely, Jane. Well, first of all, yeah, there is definitely that um, what I call the empathy gap. You know, there there is uh, uncertainty in how to navigate this. And you're completely right, because a lot of people are keeping these thoughts in their head because they might not necessarily know who to go to and don't want to look like they're doing something wrong. And it can very quickly escalate and spiral into yeah something that that we don't want you know just grievances in the workplace so um some of the best practices you know that i find it's, it's really to have that you know openness to learning and validating you know people's experience yes and very funnily i also had a coo a chief operations officer who came to me after a talk I gave where she said three of her managers have come to her to say that they have ADHD because she had very openly supported you know people in the talk and 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 so she's like what do I do now you know can you please help me and it is true that she didn't want to advertise that she is getting help you know to 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 find out what to do and and so yeah I I, I gave her a strategy session to to work out you know how do you communicate and what kind of resources and tools and processes that, that you need, you know, in order to move forward. And and yeah, it, it does end up um yeah that, that they know what to do. But really the challenge is to embed this, you know, within the organization. Because you can know what to do, but to embed it is not a one day thing, right? As um and, and one way I, I do this is through facilitated discussions between um managers you know we can have a group of managers who wants to ask questions and trying to figure out you know how to move forward with, with their team members or maybe also discussions between the manager and the team member because sometimes that might be needed you know in a kind of before it goes yeah pear shape yeah and and it's interesting we've just put together actually a list of good questions to ask when you start an organization of your manager and of your manager to ask of you. So a kind of a exploration session right at the beginning about how do I get the best out of you and how do you get the best out of me? And mm-hmm. there's some just real real simple questions that if, if people took the time at the beginning to talk about would really help them. But also to your point that actually not just at the beginning, further through the relationship that time is created to keep coming back to, how do we get the best out of each other, no matter what that looks like, whether it's ADHD, autism, or whether it's other needs and desires that people have to work at their best. So, so much of this is about having the confidence to step into the conversation, isn't it? Now, oh my gosh, we could talk for several days, I think, on this topic, and I would love to do that. But hopefully for those of you listening, you might want to do that, and, and, and we might get the opportunity to talk to you again together. But two things I just want to explore before we finish. The, the first is around if you are someone that has ADHD yourself and you are leading others, what advice you might have. And then I want to wrap up with crystallizing this this down to, to three three bits of advice you might give or, or three things to leave people with. But let's start first of all with if if someone's listening and they say, well, that's me, I've got ADHD, I've got a team, I'm leading a team. How do I best 
be mindful of what to do? Yeah, so, I mean, I suppose it's, first of all, be compassionate to yourself. Because I know that, you know, managers are trusted into this place where they're no longer just needing to manage a team. They're becoming psychologists. They're becoming like, you know, project managers and butlers, whatever. You I know? love that. I love the, the ones you chose there because you're so right. And there's a list of about 25, aren't there, that we could come up with very quickly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because we, we're actually yeah, thrown into this place where we're not just doing the job and managing people we're actually looking after people's lives and that's a lot of emotional labor expected on the manager so like to say okay there are things you can do as a manager you know just to help yourself but also you need support and to ask for it you know because you can't do it alone and it's often when the manager's overwhelmed and trying like desperately trying to find a solution by themselves without the support structure that's when they you know can run into real difficulty but yeah, just a, as a rule of thumb, you know, to understand who you are as a person, you know, and how how do you lead? And where are your challenges? Because you've got to be kind to yourself as well, right? You have strengths as well as challenges. Maybe if you have ADHD that you have trouble delegating and you need to maybe outsource that, right? Because the, 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 the hallmark of a good leader is to see, you know, within um the, the team and look at the team as a puzzle right who fits where and and you know how do we get the job done by getting so and so to work together you know and it's about complementation and, and not really about like saving people or you know putting in a scaffolding for someone and turning into a rescuer or the other way around and often the challenge also i find it is really interesting because even within neurodivergence you know within the neurodiverse community there is an empathy gap and this comes from coming from different places in the world and that's why I talk about intersectionality you know if you come from a cross-cultural background a different way of life and thinking you might not think the same as the next neurodivergent because believe it or not we are just as diverse you know <laughs> within the population as it is outside you know but we don't often talk about that so you might need some um some, some prompts in how to communicate you know with people and if you're also autistic which a lot of adhders are because the co-occurrence between adhd and autism is up to 80 to 90 percent mm. and, and so you could have a social communication difference right so yeah so um sometimes you might actually need to have uh, like a third party almost you know to help you facilitate conversations if it, if it, if it gets difficult yeah and i think you know it's a great point and not being afraid to ask for that as well because <laughs> there's a win-win there for the third party isn't there that that they get the chance to come in and play a role too so um gosh so much as i say sam in in what we've talked about and so much more i know we could tap into but as i say hopefully we will at a later date tell us just to round off what three pieces of advice would you give to leaders for the future around this whole area that we've covered today well, i suppose um the first thing is that yes you know the reasonable adjustments, right, that help an individual to bring their best creative self to work, that needs to be tailored to the individual. And this is not just tailored to their neurodivergence, it's tailored to their life circumstances. And then you have the challenge of trying to work out how to help the other people as well who doesn't have a label, because we are moving into a society of um, people who are newer labeled and you're not yet labeled. And really, we all need to thrive at work. So that is um, the challenge that you're having to contend with, because ultimately, neurodiversity is opening up, you know, the thinking that actually 
you know, regardless of where we come from, how our brains work, you know, and our life circumstances, everyone deserves equal chances. And we all have them. And our, we all have mental health. Um, and it's about really being fair and equitable, right, in the workplace. And then um, how, how many have I done? <laughs> You've done one so far. Oh, wow. okay, I'm, on my, I'm still on the edge of my seat, even with the first yeah. one. So <laughs> no. I was like, well, what was the question again? <laughs> that's my ADHD. <laughs> I, I love it. Well, I have to say, given we've been going for more than 30 minutes, I'm very impressed that this is the first time that we've gone back to the to the, to the question. Um, three pieces of advice you'd give leaders, leaders for the future. So that was one. Yeah, yeah. So that was one. And then, yeah. So secondly, right, actually, I, that should have been the first because the single biggest fear for neurodivergence in the workplace, because it's an invisible you know, experience is the fear of being misunderstood. So that often, you know, really boils down to the communication between two person. And that's why I talk about the empathy gap and bridging this empathy gap, because in the um, absence of understanding, there could be yeah further challenges down the line. And, and that could manifest, say, after the neurodivergence come into the workplace. So as I think you you mentioned you have this list of questions um, between managers and team members. How do I get the best out of you? Yeah. But often ADHDers, and you know, especially if you're hyper focused on getting the job, you 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 might want to give your best, right? And but then there's also a certain level of anxiety around this that you need to understand, and that's the anxiety to perform and to meet expectations. And that's why it's so important that the way you communicate and know how to communicate with each other with clear expectations and also be mindful of feedback because feedback when given in a way that can incite the stress response, you know, could lead to conflict that can then generate that me versus them mentality. You know, that, that that's what we need to be aware of. And then the third thing is, yeah, it's just to create a place where people feel belong. And when they feel belong, they feel safe, they can, you know, rest and they can connect and they can learn and think and contribute and work. So that's that's the three tricky things. I love those. Thank you, Sam. And there are three things that we can all, no matter who we are, be mindful of and act upon. And that's the beauty of them. It's been wonderful having you, Sam. I feel like anyone listening to this will have higher awareness than they did when they came in. But not only that, it's given real practical things that people can take away and apply in their lives, with their families, as well as at work. And that's what we wanted to do together today, wasn't it? So listen, I'm looking forward to working with you um, directly with some of our clients more over the next few months. And I hope that those listening might want to do that too. But meantime, really appreciate you joining us and good luck continuing to educate and change the world so that all of our colleagues, friends, and people and human beings can have a life where they can truly shine and be the best of whoever they are. Well, thank you so much, Jane. I love what you do, you know, and I love to be able to contribute in, in any way possible going forward, because we really need to shake up the system and change the culture to make it more inclusive, not just for neurodivergence, but everyone as well. I agree. Let's go change culture and do it more than with tools, but really change belief and behavior to make the world a better place. Sam, thank you so much. Look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you so much, Jane. This podcast was brought to you by the
Coach Models. Mm-hmm.